HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This special program was brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Ben Schott, the man of miscellany. Thank you for being on air with us today. It's a pleasure. April Fools. Not that that was my full April Fools joke, because that would be terrible. Um, I mean, let's talk about the holiday itself, because you have some fascinating trivia associated <laughs> with it. Well, I, I, have, I should come on, be honest and say I actually dislike April Fool's. I agree. Um, and I think it's, it inverts the basic standard of humor, which is the only person laughing is the person making the joke, yeah. which is exactly the opposite of what a joke ought to be. Um, I'm more interested in where you should place the apostrophe. <laughs> is it before or after the S? After the um, S, right? Uh, well, discuss. <laughs> um, so, depends how many fools, I yeah. suppose, there are. Um, no, I mean, it depends. There are different kind of notions of the etymology. Some think it comes from uh, the first errand, Noah's fruitless dispatch of a ship to shore dove. Some people think it links to the Hindu festival of, of, of Holi. Um, there are liminal, exuberant sort of holiday ceremonies in a whole host of languages when seasons change. Um, I think it might be linked to the change of the calendar um, when the, um, the Gregorian calendar shifted from New Year f uh, from March 25th to January the 1st, leaving a whole host of April Fools to try and work out the shift of date when it came to this time of year. Although April the 5th is when the UK tax year changes, so that's another horror we have to look forward to <laughs> in the next three or four days, at least if you're British, won't we? So taking some single subjects such as April Fools, a holiday or anything of sorts... 
you're interested in researching and figuring out as much information that that can be either a quip or phrase or something that sticks in your memory about that said subject. Where did this fascination come from? Did you grow up always, you know, particularly interested in systems and in singular thought? I was more interested always in the bit at the back of the book. So your, you know, the, your textbook in geography had a list of capital cities in the back. Or it was always the footnotes that interest me, and it's the footnotes of life that I think really are the things that stick with me. So someone says something, and you overhear something, and you think it's about a system. I was in a pub, um, and I was overhearing two old guys who were talking about beekeeping, and it's not a subject that particularly interested me until somebody, one of them, said about the queen bee colouring. And I actually st- interrupted their drink, which is something you don't do in a London yeah. pub really lightly. And I said, I'm sorry, it's terribly rude of me. But did you say queen bee colouring? And he said, oh, yeah. And it turns out the beekeepers paint the thorax of the queen bee with dabs of ink to identify them. And there's a colour code to tell you how old and which year the queen bee was introduced to the hive. And this is, I mean, this is what I want to know about. I don't really care anything about bees or particularly like honey, but there's a color coding for queen bees. That's what I'm interested in. So, I mean, this is dinner conversation. Where do these (laughs) facts come into real life? They don't. I mean, that's the joy. Um, I'm, I, I want to be difficult. I don't like the word trivia. Um, I like the word miscellany, and I, even though I find it quite hard to say sometimes. Um, the reason I don't like trivia is trivia tends to be competitive. It's male. It's I know this, you don't, therefore I'm better than you. It's a one-upmanship. And that's the sort of information I dislike. I don't like testing or quizzing information. I like, oh my God, you have to see this. And you want to show, you, all you want to do is share this. You don't want to prove you're superior or try and prove it. You want to go... You've got to see this. This is hilarious. Did you know there was? I mean, as a child, were you like that? Or did someone foster that intrigue for you? I mean, if anyone, it was my father, who is a medical doctor, but he writes medical papers and philosophical papers on the strangest of subjects. He's an expert in Leonardo's handwriting, for example. Leonardo could write ambidextrously. He could write normal writing and reverse mirror writing with different ha- with both hands at the same time. So he could draw one of those Rorschach uh, yes. tests. Yes, I mean, uh, you know, and he's, my father wrote a very interesting, for example, paper on the uh, history of the scientific footnote. And this is the kind of background I had. And I think that's what I find interesting. But it's not trivia. It's not one-upmanship and it's not competitive. It's sort of delighting in things and wanting to share them. Um, it's not competition. It's joyous, I think. And it's not minutia either, which I think implies something being a little more trivial, too. I agree. I mean, the things that interest me, as you said, are systems of knowledge. It's knowing that there is a way of looking at the world and thinking about the world. Um, and whether that is through language or through, I'm interested at the moment in hand signals, it, they're just different ways of communicating in a sort of Wittgensteinian way. The way we talk about the world is the way we experience the world. And so what interests me at the moment is language. And actually language is often the way into this is there's a code, there's a system, there's a color coding, there's a special way of bells and whistles. And as soon as someone says that, you're like, this is fascinating. I need to know more about this. It's funny, you know, holding your books right now, your shots, food and drink, miscellany, the, the almanacs, uh, schadenfreude, which we'll discuss later. I mean, it's text, it's type, it's, it's this 2D thing. But I know you entered uh, language with a visual sense as a photographer. Well, <clears throat> I'm in the unusual position of typesetting all my work. So I design and typeset all of the books I write and also all the journalism I do for, say, the New York Times or Playboy or Vanity Fair. So the, the way I put ink on paper is very much the way I think. Um, <clears throat> I 
tend to write in a slightly odd way. I think inside the box. The first thing I do is say, what's the box? What's the space? Literally, how much space do I have on a page or in a magazine? And then you think, all right, how can I use this space and use typography and graphics and photography, basically just ink, to express it in the clearest and most elegant way I can? And that's half the joy, is the graphic design, because that then informs the way I think about the subject. So, I mean, as a photographer, you were more commercial in the sense... uh... I was not an art photographer. Oh, really? Because it seems way. so funny to think of you talking about text in that way. And, you know, there's a subtractive and added photographer, one that puts in the scene and one that takes away. I'd think you'd be, you know, the one that puts into scene, which is more commercial and the other one's more reportage. Uh, I start off doing reportage and I did sort of, you know, hard 35 mil black and white. I used to work in the dark rooms of the independent newspaper when I was at high school. And that was where I sort of taught myself photography. And that was a very hard news, very graphic. And it turns out I just couldn't handle the unpleasantness of it all. I went to a couple of riots and I saw people getting their heads kicked in. And I just thought there are two ways I can deal with this. Either I get used to this violence, which is not good for me, or I don't, which is not good for me. (laughs) So I thought, okay, I will become a portrait, uh, newspaper portrait photographer. And so I moved from reportage to portraiture, which is a lot more graphic and commercial. And I started photographing a lot of very ugly people. I did a lot of politicians and businessmen. No one glamorous, no one sexy. So Hugh Grant, Tony I did. Blair. This is true. <laughs> I'm not sure. Hugh Grant, okay, he was the rare exception. But if you're photographing, you know, the head of Ford or Centrica or, you know, some, you know, hedge fund guy, on the whole, these aren't the most stylish people. So what I would do is I would create an elegant frame. So you could put anything in there. And anything happened to be this dude whose jacket didn't fit with a suede of dandruff. And you're like, okay, fine. Well, it's a beautiful frame. Yeah. Um, but no, I was, a, I was not an art photographer. I was a commercial graphic photographer. And that's always what interested me. Very clean lines, very simple. Um, and that's the kind of typography I like. Yeah. So when did this itch happen? I know there was... A Christmas where you were kind of creating these booklets for friends and family on essential information for life. So the whole writing thing took a weird left-hand turn. I started, when I was a photographer, as you know from being a photographer, you have to remind people you're alive to get work because being a freelance is tough out there. And so I would send Christmas cards every year to my clients to say, hey, I'm alive, you should you know, use me. And one year I designed a little booklet of facts um, that had technical things for photographers and designers. So it had paper sizes, chemical stocks, lighting temperatures, and it was incredibly boring. So I leavened it with things like wine bottle sizes and cloud types and column types and, you know, ionic, Doric, Corinthian, all these little bits and pieces, uh, phobias, capital cities. And this little booklet turned into a book and the book suddenly was then published and then everything kind of changed. Can we talk about 11th it for a second? The 11th. Well, I've always disliked top tens. In the same way I dislike the word trivia, I dislike top ten lists because, frankly, okay, the first might be interesting, maybe the second, but the eighth, who cares about the eighth? So I spent a long time trying to find the 11th, which is very, very hard, the 11th tallest building, the 11th longest river, because people stop at 10. Yeah. And it, it just struck me as being in a very spinal tap way, much more fun to go up to 11. Yeah, it's the best of the worst, but I thought it was associated with 11s's. Oh, 11 Zs, the, 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 the smackerel of my culture. No, not particularly, although I do like 11 Zs. Yeah. Can you explain what that is? A bit? Okay, well, this is actually useful for all Americans out there. When British people say, let's meet for tea, they mean 3.30 to 4 o'clock tea. And when they say, let's meet for coffee, they mean 10, 11 coffee. So when I say, let's meet for coffee, and they say, sure, what about 4 o'clock? And you're like, no, if I'd meant 4 o'clock, I would have asked you for tea. 11 Zs is a snack that you have about 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Um, if anyone reads their Winnie the Pooh, it's a smackerel, maybe. It's a little bit of honey, cup of tea, 
cup of coffee. That's all I have to say about yeah. the Evans <laughs> You know, uh, and this is kind of the segue into the greater food knowledge that you have. Um, because when you started writing these books, I mean, you were picked up by a publisher off of literally those booklets that you sent out to friends, family, clients. Yeah. Um, what was what was the initial book? Was it just an elaboration of that booklet itself? It was. It was taking 16 pages, turning it into 160 pages, which is a random extent. I mean, as people know, books tend to be in signatures of 32 or 16 pages, so mm-hmm. pick a number, divide it by 16. Um, and it was just an extrapolation of this. And once you got into it, you thought, okay, well, what has to be in this book? And there were all sorts of things that, you know, phobias, Latin tags, cloud types, things that you just thought, things that were at the back of your mind or the tip of your tongue, things that, where would you go to look this up? This was pre-Google, really. This was just at the beginning of the internet. So but there wasn't really anywhere to go and look for this. Were thing. these things innate? I mean, were these knowledges you already had? Did you look up at this guy and say, that's a serious, that's a cumulus? No, I'm actually much less clever than <laughs> the books would imply. Uh, I don't have that kind of knowledge, but I have, I think, an interest. And you only have to... So what I, the research tends to be taking a footnote for a walk or being taken on a walk by a footnote. So I read in a feast book by Roy Strong about the different slaves at a Roman feast and their different jobs. And he didn't really go into any detail, but I thought now I have to go and find out what the slaves at a Roman feast were. So then you go and do the research. So often one little offhand comment throws you down a huge then path of work to find out something and to really nail it. And that's what I like to do is to take a subject and say, right, what's the essence because I've got a relatively short attention span and it's probably slightly longer than my readers. So I'm like, as soon as I'm bored, I stop. Yeah. I need to try and boil, you know, boil it down to the essence and say, that's all you need to know. So in 2002, I believe, it, Shot's original miscellany mm-hmm. was released. In the UK? Yes. When did it come to the US? The next year. And it just was a phenomenon. It was insane. I mean... <laughs> It would be absurd to say I'm still pinching myself because, you know, pinching for 12 years just leads to, you know, (laughs) bruising. Um, (laughs) But it does stun me. And it's odd. When people, when the book did well, there was a certain sense to some people, it's like, oh, it's very clever. I see what you've done here. It's very cynical. You know, it's a very cleverly created book. It really wasn't. It is actually an incredibly autobiographical work. And I was sort of, I'm still sort of stunned, but I was completely thrown when it did very well because it's a very personal book and lots of entries in there anyone who knows me opens it and kind of rolls their eyes and goes ben has been banging on about this for years and finally you've written it down um so it was it wasn't it was really it was a labor of love that then i think just captured people's imagination and it was very odd i mean how do you organize that information and the lead the intro that first line of a book is there that in well, the in the first line of the book is a quote by Virginia Woolf, and it's "Let us not take it for granted that life exists more fully in what is commonly thought big than was what is commonly thought small." And I've always thought this is very true. And the structure is also a Virginia Woolf uh, line. The way I think about it, and I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but it's something like, "This is her pro style, her stream of consciousness, which seems very random." And she said, um, "Light and evanescence, like a butterfly's wing, it should be on the surface." but underneath it should be clamped together with bolts of iron. And what I want is when people open my work, they look at it and they kind of think, oh, it's, you know, little flits here and flits there. But it's only because I hope I've really clamped it together. The facts are right. It's been fact-checked, you know. It's been copy-checked. The typography is right, you know. And there's lots of little bits of detail that the reader doesn't see, but I hope I've clamped it together with bolts of iron. You know, I think I mistakenly used the word quips at the, you know, beginning of this segment. 
it's not that either. It's not as fleeting. It's not as temporal. Because I mean, course, well, some of it. I mean, yeah, let's not get too pompous about it. So some of it's just very, very silly jokes. Um, but I kind of think you have to take these things seriously. I mean, if a book of miscellany is full of errors and it's just slapdash, then it's not funny. The funny comes from taking something incredibly frivolous like carry on films or just open the book at random i mean you know what different animals taste like and taking it very seriously that's where i think the humor lies that the joy comes from something evanescent and strange but dealt with in an incredibly authentic and serious way and do you have a section about what different animals I taste do like? actually if you post it to me it's actually because the theory is everything tastes like chicken and of course now <laughs> i can't find it but there's this amazing book uh, sorry, I'm flipping. Oh no, no! Here. I mean, I asked you at before the show how much of this information can you actually retain at one time. Well, I read this eleven years ago, if not more. Taste like page sixty-one of your hymn books, boys and girls. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to do this. And so, for example, uh, we discovered that tapir tastes like beef. Uh, puma tastes like veal. Water hair tastes like tapir, which means it must taste like beef. That's a bit confusing, isn't it? <laughs> Armadillo tastes of rabbit. Uh, baby wasps taste of scrambled eggs. Now, I know this because this comes from um, a friend of mine who is a Burmese. He escaped Burma, and he's a member of the Padang tribe, and he's eaten baby wasps, and he reliably informed me it tastes like scrambled eggs. Um, boa constrictor tastes of veal. Monkey tastes of rabbit. The giant water bug tastes of gorgonzola. So if you're ever out of gorg, if the recipe yeah. calls for gorgonzola and you haven't got any, you can always substitute giant. It's water weird. Bug. You can get giant water bug, um, like I don't even know what it is. This syrup down in Chinatown um, to flavor certain pastries. There you go. Yeah, and it does. It does taste cheesy. Well, you see, it's all true, and a lot of this comes from a fantastic book. Um, uh, where is it? The Curiosities of Natural History by Mister Buckland. Um, this anyway. So. That's the kind of thing that I've lost the thread of your question, but that's what happens, you see. And then you go down the road, and then we have to go to Chinatown and buy this and taste it. And this is now my life, so thank you very much. No, I mean, so this is a book, uh, Shots, Food and Drink, Miscellany. Mm-hmm. came out in, what, 2003? Three. And have you updated? Uh, is this something, or has it kind of sustained you for food and drink knowledge for the past 11 years? Um, well, yeah, I sort of, I, I mean, I pretty much said everything I wanted to say. I mean, you could, you could go on, but, um, no, it's, 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 it's a fun, but it doesn't need much updating because on the whole, you know, it's, the giant water beetle still tastes of gorgonzola. I mean, I don't have to check it every few or three years, but I've actually been, I mean, the, the, the pieces I've done more recently for say the New York times have gone back to food partly because, you know, I'm a glutton. And partly because it's it's a wonderful intersection. And anyone who writes about food or reads about food, it's fascinating. Something everyone does three times a day, if not more. And people say the foodie world is getting too preposterous. And they may have a point. But yet, we do do this every day, all of us. And so why shouldn't we take an interest in what we put into our mouths? You know, in the same way we do what we listen to or read or wear. Well, we're actually going to take a quick break and come back and talk about those secret languages that Ben Schott has been exploring in the restaurant and food world. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Wisconsin cheeses have an illustrious heritage of more than 170 years of quality and craftsmanship. 
During this long and rich history, the art and science of cheesemaking have been captured in time-honored traditions that produce cheese varieties of unsurpassed excellence. Today, Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit www.eatwisconsincheese.com. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Ben Schott of Schott's Miscellany. We were just talking about your food and drink book, but lately you've, you've come current or you've, you've used contemporary food culture as a reference or a guide for these amazing secret language pieces you've been doing for the New York Times op-ed. Um, one I kind of want to start with is of Psalms. Partially because Joe Campanella, who is also a host on Heritage Radio Network, and if you don't listen to In the Drink, you should, you interviewed him and a multitude of other New York City uh, sommeliers about the language or lexicon that they use to describe wine, sell wine, interact with it. How did this come to be? So this is a part of a series I've been doing on private languages. They're not really secret in the sense that they don't sort of hide them from you, but they're private because they're just a language that a group uses in their everyday world. And it started off, I wrote a piece on the private language of restaurants in New York, and that then led on to doing something about sommeliers. Um, and sommeliers are fascinating because people are very scared of them, I think. I mean, not Joe, obviously, because he's the charmingest man even if charming is, doesn't actually exist as a word. I don't know why I said that. I'm sorry, guys. Um, the most charming man. And it's a wonderful world, but people are scared. I think people are terrified of being upsold. I think people are terrified they're going to be made to look stupid. And the, the sommeliers I've met wouldn't upsell anybody and are incredibly happy to share their knowledge. They live for wine. So it was a way of diving into this world and really exploring it. And again, I don't want to write the story that everyone writes about sommeliers that starts, when you go to a restaurant and you talk to a sommelier, and it's been written a thousand times before. So I wanted to dive straight into some of the language they use. So, you know, it literally starts with the codes they have for the big, serious drinkers, the whales, the players, the baller, deep ocean. Um, a serious drinker who will drop more than $1,000 on a single bottle. A big, wet, an extra big baller can spend more than $100,000 on wine during a meal. Now, my, my editor at the Times, quite reasonably, just said, is there a typo there? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, no. And he said, could, could you just check? So I went back to the source on this, and I said, 100000 He goes, well, it's not common, but yeah, it happens relatively frequently. Yeah. And this is, so this is the world, all the way through from this down to the cork dork, yeah, the guy who wants to test you on orange wine and everything you know about it. Yeah, I mean, do you as a person who, you know, is the man of miscellany, do, do you get tested often? Do people try to bring out this knowledge in you seeing what you know and what you don't? Occasionally, but they are almost instantly disappointed and then they just walk <laughs> away. So it doesn't happen very often. But I mean, I, I try and be interested. I'm not I'm less interested in being interesting. What I want to do is I want to dive in. And, and the sommeliers are great, but what's fascinating about them and almost everyone you interview in this way is that they often go, well, we don't really have any slang. And you think, no, no, you do. And then you have to persuade them. And then eventually they start unloading these gems of knowledge. And some of them are very serious. And they talk about, you know, the, the bottling and the unpacking. And some of them are great. I mean, you know, ABC, anything but Chardonnay. Um, <laughs> 
and some really, really, you know, uh, the cougar juice, which is, you know, California Shard or Malbec, you know, which is what the cougars drink when they're out on the pool together. <laughs> um, Parker wine, you know, wine that is created to match the perceived taste of Robert Parker. Often it's been spoofulated, a well-known wine term that I didn't know, but everyone in the industry knows. Spoofulated wine is wine manipulated with, say, oak chips to give it a big, booming, buttery, Robert Parker-type flavour. So there are all these words out there that they use every day to themselves behind the scenes. And as, as a kind of someone who interacts with them, it's fascinating to have a little glimpse into their world. See, I love the story that you told me uh, about your wife coming home with a pin on her lapel. <laughs> and that, that was really your introduction into you know, this. This, this. I mean, so I, I was sick. My wife went to a party and uh, she came back with a pin on her jacket and it had big letters, F-O-J-B, which struck me as being slightly filthy. So I said, <laughs> and what does that mean? And she said, oh, it means friend of Jimmy Bradley. And she'd been to a party, I think the Harrison, one of Jimmy Bradley's restaurants. And she said, oh, it's the system, the code they have in their booking system. If you're like a VIP or you're a friend of the restaurant and then you, you know, you get good service like all restaurants do. And that was when this kind of light went on. And I thought, huh, if there's one, there's more. Where there's a code, there's a system. And so then I decided to go and do uh, some more research. And I wrote this piece for the Times, Terms of Service. And everybody from Del Posto, Union Square Cafe, the Bernardin Diner, Del Anima, the Meatball Shop, uh, Maialino, all gave me their, their code words. My favorite code words uh, is, comes from Sammy's Romanian Steakhouse <laughs> on Christie Street, which is one of the great sort of old school. I've, old I've school. danced the horror there many a times. So... <laughs> And I spoke to the manager there, and he was just fantastic. He's got a great voice. And it took a bit of backwards and forwards to get it. And it, I left his space because I really wanted to have these guys in. Because the idea of having him in with Danielle and, you know, the little loud and Le Cirque. And his, one of his codes is Mr. Schwartz and his niece. And it, on the reservation system, Mr. Schwartz and his niece means an old Jewish man with his very young girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I love. All restaurants have this code. They all have something for the great customer, the obnoxious customer, the guy who doesn't tip. Baristas have this. I wrote a, language, a piece about the language of baristas. Half the barista language is about coffee you use, and half the barista language is about how the cute girl in the queue looks. And, of course, they're behind the bar, and they spend most of their time talking about coffee or talking about us, the customers. And that's what I love. It's when you know, normal people interact with people with their own language and it's getting a little insight into that world and it's such fun. I mean, have you figured out, have you cracked a code to be able to get a reservation at a restaurant <laughs> and get that, you know, big whale, that baller table? The, yeah, the, 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 there is a secret code to getting into a great restaurant is to go very often and spend lots of money yeah. <laughs> and then they'll give you, I mean, Del Posto um, has uh, a code which is always and always in the system means always get to table. And it's a super regular. And it's someone who's gone more than 60 times. So I think I've got, you know, 55 times to go before I become. So the answer is, um, yeah, <laughs> give them love and it's returned. And it's interesting. These codes aren't cynical. I think it's a way that restaurants, you know, do business. And as anyone who's ever worked in one knows, they become like families. And you get regulars and you get people you like and you want to do them favors. And it's, it's, a, it's actually really rather charming that they take this much care. It's not all auditory, though, because I love the sign dining piece that you did for The Times, you know, that, that shows hand signals and gestures that actually, you know, imply a certain type of service in a restaurant. So this came about, um, this is a piece I did for The Times uh, with uh, Will Gadera of 11 Madison Park, one of the great restaurants in the world. And it actually started because I came across on the internet um, a piece 
that was in Time magazine in 1944 when Alfred Eisenstadt, a great photographer, slumming it with these photographs, took photographs of the Stork Club of Sherman Billingsley, you know, the great bootlegger, criminal, general club man about town. And he in the Stork Club had all this code for his waiters. So adjusting his tie meant no check for this table, I got the bill. Or a hand resting on the table palm upwards meant bring a bottle of champagne. And there were all these codes. And this was in the back of my mind. And then I was talking to Will Guevara and about, and he said, he fleetingly said, oh, that we use hand signals. And again, it was a bit like the bumblebee conversation. You're like, well, stop, hang on, what? And he said, oh, yeah. So for an example, it's a, it's a big restaurant. It's a big, cavernous, beautiful space. And so when you're sat at the table and the server comes and asks you what kind of water you like, you know, bottled or still, flat or sparkling, um, there's a code system they use to signal to the busboy or to the, the, the captain who's probably, you know, 60 foot away. So um, if they uh, have their hand flat, that means still, sparkling, they have it out. And if they tap water you into a fist. So even without communicating, the server brings the, white, the right water over to the table. Very small touches, the kind of thing you expect in a three-star restaurant, because that's the kind of service you need. And I love the fact that from Sherman Billingsley, you know, totally criminal, bootleggy stork club, to one of the great restaurants in the world, there are still the hand signals still being used. I mean, next time I go in 11 Madison Park, I'm just going to order (laughs) sparkling myself, walk in. It looks like a hang 10 almost with the fingers extended. Apparently people do this. People come in and they (laughs) kind of know because it's it's online and you can see it. Um, But it's, it's... one of the reasons I love 11 Madison Park is this sense that a real professionalism to service. And that's what all these codes often are. It's a way of speeding things up and it's a way of hiding the details from the, from the, from the, 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 the customer. They don't need to know that you're working. They don't need to know. They don't want, you know, the walkie-talkies, whatever. They just need it to be seamless and smooth. And it's like good typography, good service. You shouldn't notice it. You should just read it. And as soon as you notice the clever type, the typography or you shouldn't notice the service, you failed. The trick is, like a swan, it should glide across the water. The paddling should be underneath. I mean, but are they upset that you're exposing this, this, this language to the general public? It's kind of like baseball. Once they figure out a sign, you have to make a new sign. Do you see people evolving? Well, I, I, mean, I think they were delighted that people care because they're craftsmen. And on the whole, craftspeople like to show that there's craft because they're proud of it, as they should be. There are. I mean, one of the great hand signals is a system called Tic Tac. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. This no. is British horse racing. So when you went to the see horse racing, on, literally on the edge of the, where the horses run, on course, they had on course betting. So you could go and place bets. And there would be men standing on boxes with suits and white gloves. And they would have this system called Tic Tac that would be a way to express the odds. Because this was before walkie-talkies, before mobile phones. So you could sign language across a race course the odds and they had a twist they had standard signals for different odds 100 to 1 30 to 1 10 to 1 and they would have a twist card so then they would know when they signal 10 to 1 to their friend that wouldn't mean 10 to 1 that would mean 33 to 1 so they would introduce codes to stop people because this was you know financially very important that people didn't know what your odds were um so some codes are meant to be secret but this is not as i said secret language much as private as in, it's just private because this is something that you do amongst your own little group. But on the whole, people are really very keen to share. Because... It would be amazing to see 11 Madison Park doing inversions. You know, like, <laughs> like they ask for flat, they mean sparkling, <laughs> inverted code. It's all very well. And then everyone, yeah. everyone gets Diet Coke. And it's like, well, yeah. that's really not what we ordered. 
I, I, I mention it. Um, I, I suspect not. But it's, it's more that sense. And this is what I mean about trivia miscellany. This isn't trivia. This is a whole system. And it's that sense of people go, oh, my, what, really? And people love this. And I love sharing it. And that's, that's the joy of this information is that it's incredibly engaging. George Washington. Rules on manners. <laughs> yes. If only I could remember all of them. I, the one I remember that sticks in my mind, actually, George Washington didn't write them. He cribbed them from a French book. But one of them, which I'm going to get slightly wrong, is never put your hands in public where you would normally have them in private or something. <laughs> I think his point is just like, that, don't touch it. Yeah, I mean, that's good for even not dining. That's good for general life. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was good. Um, I'm not entirely sure how polite he was. I think that he, he was all about self-improvement, though. Yeah. Uh, the perfect proportions for a martini. <laughs> the perfect proportions is finding the right barman. Yeah. <laughs> and of course now, I mean, this is the thing, the notion of there being a perfect drink. I mean, so I, I read a piece on bar slang, which was fascinating. And what I didn't realize when I started this is, so I went to spoke to about 25, 30 New York bars to talk about all the different slang they use in their system. I didn't realize that a lot of sort of professional barmen work in different bars on different days during the week. So you might work at bar A, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then bar B, Tuesday, Saturday, and whatever. And they have a, something called a house spec. So a house spec is, listen, this is how we do our Manhattan. This is how we do our old-fashioned. So it's not like there is a, it's, there's a sort of a set rule. Different houses, different establishments have their own way of doing things. And there are house specs for well-known cocktails, which I thought was something I didn't realize. You know, th this is a time in, in food where I think everyone tries to gain intelligence or be eccentric to, to the nth degree about yeah. a specific subject. And, you know, what's great about this book, about all your books, is that it's not the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it is, it's its own whole floating flow. I mean, and you jump on that and you sail away. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's quite the trip into a very big world of miscellany. Well, <clears throat> I hope so. I mean, the, the bar piece was fascinating. I go to bars, but I, I've never worked behind a bar. And so I sort of, you have an idea of what you think it might be like. And it really isn't like that. It's, it's especially New York bars, are very serious. I had no idea, for example, how serious they were about ice. I mean, ice is a big deal. I'm you got to like, have your cold draft. You have to have, you know. But I mean, so there's harvesting. So I literally went down to the <laughs> to the basement of Weather Up and in Tribeca, and they harvest their ice. They have a clinabel, I think that's the name. They 300 pound blocks of ice. They hoist up on a pulley. They then take a chainsaw to it. I mean, I got a photograph of a guy taking a chainsaw to a block of ice. They then, once it's then, they then take a fret saw and then they handcraft them into little perfect sizes to fit the different glasses. These guys take ice seriously. Back in the day, you put it under the ice machine and it would just dilute water with a bit of whiskey in there. But I love that. I love the craft. And frankly, you go to these bars and you're paying, you know, $75 for a cocktail. But at least, you know, at least they take it seriously. Terms for drunkenness. I mean, I, I'm pulling from the food and drink miscellany. Um, but I was reading through, and one of my favorite was, I think it was, sniffing the barmaid's apron. <laughs> a sniff of the barmaid's apron. I'm pretty certain this comes from a H.E. Uh, Bates novel. And I think he, someone describes as, as someone who has sniffed the barmaid's apron, which is <laughs> pretty horrible image, really. Um, Got again, a crumb in his beard. 
uh, yeah, I mean, sorry, page 39, if you're following along at home. Um, <laughs> I sincerely hope you are. I know we should have everyone take out their books at the beginning exactly. of this episode. <laughs> exactly, like hymn numbers on the table. Um, I mean, actually, someone subsequently has written a book, an entire book on, which I've forgotten the guy's name, on um, euphemisms for drunkenness. Um, but there are some wonderful ones. Obfuscated, I quite like. Cup sprung, pot valiant, cannonaded, uh, taverned tight bitten by the brewer's horse i mean it really is it really is splendid i mean given how often you know we're all drunk it's good that there's a whole vocabulary to express it and you have a section of foreign toasts in there and and one of my favorites how to say cheers and i think it was over 20 different languages <laughs> although cheers are there yes I, I like it italy recently and everyone says chin chin for reasons i cannot fathom yeah such a sort of bizarre 1920s noel coward way i like here's how yeah Here's how, which is a very kind of flapperish Edwardian British thing. No one says anymore. Here's how. Is there another New York Times op-ed piece coming up? Are there other, you know, distinct parts of the food world, restaurant, bar world that you really want to explore? Well, I think I've done quite a lot of the food. I mean, I'm quite interested in other. So I did a piece on the the secret language of Fashion Week because Fashion Week hits New York, whether you like it or not, twice a year. Um, And the city is thick with models which is always good, but I try to explain it because I have no idea. So I, what I like is taking these big things that I know nothing about, and it helps that I'm an idiot because you go in and you just ask questions and you say, how does this work? How do the models get paid? What lenses the photographers use? What, I mean, you just ask all these questions. So I think there will be, I hope, lots more in this series. Food and drink, I don't know. Maybe something about busboys, maybe something about the plongeurs because I think you know, they, they don't get much airtime and yeah. i think possibly you know there's a whole world of just you know the backstage the washing up the locking up well let's talk about other big things that i don't know schadenfreude so the latest <laughs> book the latest book is a book called schottenfreude uh, which is a pun hilariously on my name schott and the german word schadenfreude schadenfreude is i'm sure all your listeners know is the uh, pleasure at other people's misfortune um, a word that's very, very big in Britain and not very big in Germany. <laughs> they, they don't find it at all funny. They're like, this is not a particularly useful word for us. Um, so what I did was I created, you know, there's that moment where you think there should be a German word for that. I bet the Germans have a word for that. Well, I created 120 German words when there wasn't a German word for that. So um, everything from, I mean, one of my favorites is Herbstlaub Trittvergnügen, which is the joy of kicking through piles of autumn leaves, which is vital. And Leertretung which is void stepping. You know when you're walking upstairs late at night and it's in the dark and you step really heavily on a stair that isn't there? Void stepping. And one for the food and drink listeners, actually, and I kind of think of it, is malnide, which is coveting thy neighbor's restaurant order. <laughs> I do that quite often. I should have got the burger. Yeah. Why did I not get every... Malnide. Malnide. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, there's so much information within your almanacs, your... Many miscellanies, uh, food and drink, schadenfreude. And it's, it's so hard to pick and choose what to retain and what not. So you just constantly keep on referencing the book. And I know you have a word for knowing where that book is on the shelf. <laughs> there's, there is. There is a very useful book uh, word for there's that because you know, A, where the book is on the shelf, but also you know where in the book that quote happens to be. Um, Schlusselzehn Agler, which is... Um, seen eagle eye and buch adler auge book eagle eye because you go you just know it's on the shelf it's on the down the bottom left hand side it's a blue book and it's about halfway through on the left hand page that's how my memory works at least well everyone should enjoy ben's collection get all the books have them on your shelf and 
use both those large <laughs> German words, which I won't try to repeat. Benshot.com. Find it all there. Amazon, local bookstores. <laughs> Thank you so much, and it's been a pleasure. And I can't wait to dive back into Shots Miscellany. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.